You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host back again in person, Paul Dorshing. And here we are in our new office. Um, finally. We've uh, finally moved in. You know, you're counting on grand openings and maybe a party, maybe some balloons falling from the ceiling and streamers or something like that. And instead, it was arguing with the city, arguing and con- with contractors. contractors, things that you're frustrated about, things that you're happy about, but you don't even notice the things you're happy about because you just expect them and the other things you're angry about. Uh, but we have our office. Oh my gosh, we have our office after years of adrift, and it living, seems. Living amongst boxes. Yeah, well, it was a, about a year ago, coming up on a year ago, <clears throat> 10 months ago, that we moved out of our old office downtown Vancouver. October. And uh, we have been uh, basically, uh, you know, living. We had a nice office for a while that we rented, and then we were supposed to be moving into our new office, and so we ended that. And then we ended up everybody working together in Richmond, which was actually quite okay. Um, and uh, finally, finally, we have an office. So our new office is in Vancouver. If you're driving by, it's the Green Building. And you might want to be more specific than the green building in Vancouver. Vancouver is pretty big. Well, it, you might figure it out on the basis of that. <laughs> or the address on our website. The address is also on the yeah. website. <laughs> but don't come here uh, right now. It's not accessible to the public. We're moving in. So it's... Things are packed. We've got mostly just boxes packed in front of the fire exits. Yeah. Um, the um, To... Uh, just impede people from leaving because uh, all the staff right now are wondering, you know, why they decided to work for a company that would have a construction site. Um, but uh, <laughs> just to constantly be working in a in a state of moving. But an occupancy permit—that was a good thing. We yeah. finally have an occupancy permit. We're back in Vancouver, baby. Yes. Uh, do we, is this the part of the podcast where we just cry for the next thirty minutes? <laughs> 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 it's been so long so that's why we're late um we're recording this at 5 20 on the friday and normally we do these things on the thursday night but uh it wasn't happening at uh thursday this time no. so here we are so here we are and paul we have so much to talk about i thought perhaps we would talk about one major news story this week which was a sting operation set up by ICBC and the Delta Police Department to raise awareness about distracted driving and catch people in the act. They've done this before. I remember years ago they had uh, um, a police officer in a cherry picker in West Vancouver. And these things they always do for the sake of the publicity. They're not actually doing enforcement that way. It's to try and get some, try and get some uh, media attention. But in this case, they did enforcement. Yeah. And they also, you know, set up to impede the road pretending to be a construction site. Yeah. So the Delta Police Department created a fake construction site with officers dressed as flaggers to 
see whether people would use their phones while stopped in construction traffic. Now, this, this is so hazardous. Well, I mean, it's creating a hazard rather than, you know, dealing with stopping traffic. It's creating a hazard. And it's really like a uh, one of those circumstances where you're taking somebody who is otherwise maybe never, ever going to use their cell phone, and suddenly they've got a crisis. They've got to pick their kids up from camp. They've got a child who's been taken to the hospital by somebody, and they've got to get to the hospital, or they've got some other personal crisis that they're dealing with. Maybe, maybe, you know, it's a lower level emergency, but regardless. Um, and putting them in a circumstance where they may be the best driver who never checks their phone, but they check their phone at that point because the police have created this circumstance. And I think that just smacks as unfair to most people. I agree. I think there's also a significant problem with doing it because it undermines confidence in the police. I mean, the, the public confidence... And they look like they're setting up to yeah. catch regular people to make them make an, uh, commit an offense. Yeah, well, look, everybody complains from time to time, that something that police do is a cash grab. But this is, how else do you characterize it? Cash grab. Like, it would be one thing if they were going to use the opportunity to educate, knock on the window, hand a pamphlet, lecture somebody, let them go. But the fact that they actually issued tickets that result in significant fine revenue for government, among other things, that's a cash grab. That's a very definition of a cash grab. Yeah, I mean, I'm more concerned with the with the setting up to get people who are otherwise virtuous to commit an offense. Well, it's called entrapment. Yeah. The uh, but yeah, it's also just a cash grab. And for how do you like to be part of the publicity stunt? You know, it's a publicity stunt and a cash grab. Um, in anything, if anything, it does not enhance the Delta Police. I'm sure you, Kyla, probably saw my tweet that I know uh, some Delta Police officers have told me that internally they refer to themselves as Delta Force. Um, so some <laughs> I of the, like that. I some of the Delta that. Forces, uh, I think they should change their name officially to Delta Force. Um, the Delta Police are um, uh, not uh, not uh, winning friends or influencing the public in a way that uh, they would want, I think, from this. How did it go when you were on Mike Smith today? I heard a little bit about it. Yeah, I talked on the Mike Smith show about this. It went well. Generally, the callers were supportive. The first caller was somebody who had been injured by a distracted driver, but you know, he even had complaints about police and distracted driving and their conduct. So, mm. you know, I think everybody has something negative to say about police enforcement of distracted driving in some respect, which makes you think maybe it's time to revisit the law. Well, or maybe re revisit the manners of enforcement. So I'm, I think most people fully recognize that if your car is moving, you shouldn't have your phone in your hands. Your phone, you know, your hands are supposed to be on the wheel. And every once in a while you see somebody, you know, I'll see somebody, I look over and they're in a Range Rover beside me. I think of one person I saw, she was in a uh, white Range Rover and she was, you know, driving with her knee ahead, you know, moving ahead as she was texting. And I've seen that enough times. It's disturbing when you see it. And those are the times when you're thinking to yourself, my God, I wish there was a police officer here. But, you know, the person who you know picks up their phone because it bings and it's sitting on the passenger seat or the cup holder to look at the message on the front of their screen when they're stuck in traffic, 
when it's uh, a train, for example, you're not going anywhere. Like half the time you're sitting there in your park and you turned your engine off because it's a train, but you're still on the road, right? You're not, you're still on a roadway. You're not parked. Um, those locations just does not, does not cause people to have confidence in police or the system. And they keep talking about distracted driving deaths, distracted driving deaths. You know, and I know, I think you referred to it when you were on Mike Smith today, um, that the statistics are heavily skewed because it's not electronic device and deaths. It's distractions of all sorts. Yes. Um, the statistics will tell you there's so many people dying, but I think you did an FOI yeah, five years I, ago. Yeah, I did an FOI, and they, they, they lump it all in together. Yeah, but the every different were, type of distraction. There were what two that were actually attributable to cell phone use? Well, there was none in Vancouver, and I think there was there it was either two province wide. No, there's two in Surrey where they connected it to cell phone use, um, and overall in the province there was like 13 over a 10 year period. Uh, but there was you know there was there were hundreds that were classified as distracted driving, but next to none that they could say were cell phones, and most of them. Huge number of them were people rubbernecking at accidents. Mm-hmm. So driving back yesterday on the uh, Coca um, there was a new Chevy truck flipped over completely upside down. Cool. Uh, all the airbags out, and the uh, the uh, tow truck was there to uh, to right side it and tow it away. And uh, you know, I slowed right down for that. I thought maybe there was police there, and I thought I should slow down for that emergency vehicle. But I was rubbernecking. Look at that. There you go. Look at Distracted that. driver, at Paul Upside Dorshenko. down. You Upside down Chevy truck. All right. Moving on from distracted driving for a minute, I wanted to talk about a recent roadside prohibition decision from the BC Supreme Court. Very interesting case. This case is called Tremblay, and uh, there were three arguments that were made in the case, two of which were not successful, although one was like a partially successful, and one which was successful. So this is involving the immediate roadside prohibition scheme. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Prohibitions issued to Mr. Tremblay, uh, who ends up getting um, a it confirmed on review. He loses his hearing, so he goes to judicially review it. And one of the things that he argued... You know what I think we should do is I think we should give a quick summary of the immediate roadside prohibition scheme for people. We've given a quick summary of the immediate roadside prohibition scheme in every... 90-day driving prohibition issued on the basis of a roadside breath tester. Reviewed at the superintendent of motor vehicles. Decision comes from the superintendent's office and it says... You lose. Yeah. So Mr. Tremblay takes it to BC Supreme Court and runs certain arguments there. Yes. So one of the things that you have to have when you're an officer issuing a immediate roadside prohibition is a sworn report to superintendent. And the sworn report to superintendent requires the officer to attach certain documents and a typed narrative explaining what actually happened. And in Mr. Trombley's case, the officer attached a narrative. He said that the narrative was 13 pages but there were 13 pages. The superintendent only received 11 pages. And so Mr. Trombley said, look, this isn't properly sworn. He says there's 13 pages attached, but there aren't. And the adjudicator basically said, no, it looks like he tried to submit it and it didn't come through for some reason. So it's just an error. 
but it means that there was 13 pages. It means that there was 13 pages, two of which weren't disclosed, which actually... It's a different argument. ...is a different argument, and this decision opens the door to making the different argument, which is if the inference is then that it was provided to the superintendent, procedural fairness is breached because all of the evidence was not disclosed. Yeah, but the adjudicators just overlook that all the time. Right, but... That sets but it here, up where it's where you argue, review. and we've argued this before, where it's not properly sworn because it's not the right number of pages. But but they didn't. The court didn't accept that. The court said, in my view, the adjudicator referred to the total number of pages faxed to the superintendent in order to confirm that the officer delivered all of the pages referred to in the fax cover sheet to the superintendent. Other than the notation of 13 pages in the officer's report to superintendent, there was no evidence from which the adjudicator could infer that the officer failed to submit a complete report. And uh, the court finds that the decision was fine, although, on this point, they criticized the decision on this point, um, saying that it, it was, um, the reasoning was difficult to interpret. And at the very end of the decision, the court also goes back and says that the adjudicator's decision is sometimes difficult to interpret and understand. Which is not good. Not good, but not unusual. The second issue that Mr. Trombley argued, he was successful on. And this one is very interesting to me. So he argued that he was not advised of his right to a second test. And what happened in his case after he was pulled over and he failed the first breathalyzer, the officer arrested him, read him his charter rights and warnings, read him the breath demand, and then said, now you have the right, or or now you're prohibited from driving for 90 days. And then after having told him that he was prohibited from driving for 90 days, he then says, now you have the right to take a second test. So confusing for people at the roadside because police officers officers refuse to let you talk to a lawyer and then you have to blow into an ASD. That ASD demand is pursuant to the criminal code, but they're never going to pursue a criminal code investigation because the moment they're done with you getting a fail. Um, they're going to check on their computer system and determine that you're an IRP candidate. And even if you're not, they're probably going to issue you an IRP. But after you blow fail, they then tell you that you're under arrest and you have a right to talk to a lawyer. And then they make a demand for a sample into an approved instrument that you're required to comply with. And then they come back and say, oh, no, hang on, hang on. Erase all that. Forget all that. Forget all that. I'm just going to give you a 90-day driving prohibition. You have a right to a second test. And you're like, what? Second? You you made a demand. And I was under arrest. Can I talk to a lawyer first? No, no, you can't talk to a lawyer now. I mean, it's just ridiculously confusing for people in those circumstances. And and, and all all the time, every every one of these cases, it's the same, that same thing. And uh, I have great sympathy for people. And I just think it's ridiculous that the government is so enthusiastic about this aspect of it. Well, Mr. Trombley argued effectively that this um, was wrong because he was essentially put in a position of not really appreciating the second test. Because he'd been told that he was prohibited from driving for 90 days, the prohibition had already been imposed upon him. He'd already been warned. And it, it became meaningless, effectively, to advise him of the right to a second test because there was no meaningful information conveyed to him about how it could change his circumstances. He's already told his prohibitive from 90 days, so if he gets a lower result, it doesn't matter. According to what the officer said, he's served the prohibition. This actually ties into another issue. 
which is that in law, a prohibition becomes in effect not when the magical paperwork is given to you, but instead when you become aware of the prohibition. Lots of cases on this, like the guy who drove around with the letter in his trunk for a long time because he didn't want to know what was inside, but he was willfully blind because he knew. Yeah, once you know you're prohibited. Yep. You one could take the position that you're prohibited. Of course, there's also people who have walked away and not been served their papers, and maybe they weren't prohibited. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. That would be an issue for the court to sort out, but for this purpose, he was told that he was prohibited. There was no confusion that he was prohibited. And the adjudicator essentially compares what happened with the second test to what happens when you give an ASD demand as an officer. They say, well, this is akin to a situation where an officer gives an ASD demand. You have an option to pursue a different course of conduct. You can either blow into the ASD or you can refuse, and then you get the consequences of refusal, which the court characterized as a logical fallacy. The court says the logical fallacy is the basis for the adjudicator's conclusion that notwithstanding that the petitioner had already been advised of his 90-day prohibition, he would have known and understood his right to a second test and that a lower result could help him. In my view, the reasoning employed by the adjudicator to reach this conclusion is flawed as it relies on a comparator that is not akin to the petitioner's situation. And the court says the adjudicator refers to drivers who are told prior to providing a breast sample that they will be charged with refusal if they do not do so. The circumstance which the adjudicator refers to as a comparable example is entirely different. In the refusal case, the driver has two options before the police impose any sanctions. Before the police impose any sanctions. And in the petitioner's circumstance, of course, he'd already been given the sanction. So the court found that this was successful in in determining whether this was a manifest flaw in the reasoning. The court says that Section 215.42 of the Motor Vehicle Act provides that a person has a right to forthwith request and receive a second breath analysis. Peace officer must advise a person to do so. In my view, an unreasonable conclusion about the proper administration of the second test is a significant error. It is not a superficial error, nor an error on a merely peripheral manner. And uh, that rendered the whole decision unreasonable. That's a good point. Um, That's a good point. Most of the time, people provide two samples. There's lots of times when people don't provide a second sample. And one's thinking to oneself, there's a myriad of arguments that could be worked on. But it's so rare that you get it, generally speaking. Um, And most of the time, it's um, the focus is on the police doing something wrong at that point when they're taking the second test. Yep. All right, so that one's sent back? Yes, sent back. But there was a third part of the decision where the court found that the adjudicator was unreasonable, but not to the extent necessary to interfere with the decision. And this is where the adjudicator said something that we're seeing a lot now in these cases, which is, if I accept this evidence, or if I accept this argument, then it would render a decision that would be inconsistent with the purposes and scheme of the act, and it would lead to absurd consequences. 
that would directly undermine the important public safety purpose of the legislation? Well, that's a problem because that um, uh, sort of reveals their hand in a sense. Um, uh, They've taken the position occasionally uh, in court when you've been arguing judicial reviews that they're a policy tribunal and that therefore they don't have to render the decisions on the basis of the facts, but on what they think the policy should be in these circumstances. Um, and that is essentially... Um, Considering their <laughs> their functions as a tribunal are merely to adjudicate these... Well, and it's also spelled out in legislation, yeah. right? What they're supposed to consider. There's no, they're not supposed to, there's no section that says, I must take into consider whether... I must take into account whether or not it would make it absurd. Yeah. I've, I've seen that logic used, I never told you about this, in a case where the adjudicator accepted that my client was under 80 at the time of the tests, but he was over 50. And so it wouldn't be consistent with the purposes of the legislation to revoke the prohibition, even though she was satisfied that he was under 80, the ground that then requires her to revoke the prohibition. Because he still was in the warn range. So I, he has I to assume, serve 90 days. I assume you JR'd that one. Oh, I didn't want him. Oh, that's too bad. That I know. Guaranteed winner. That would have gone right back real quick. Legislation abundantly clear. Must revoke. Well, sometimes people lose confidence in you when you lose at the hearing level, even though they, uh, they shouldn't. You're dealing with stuff like that where it's just wrong. So the adjudicator here used this to point to a problem with the procedure that the officer followed by not following the manual. And the court found that the reference to undermining the purposes of the scheme and the act was um, lacking logic, that uh, it lacked the justification and transparency required of a reasonable decision. The adjudicator did not support the statement by explaining what the purposes of the Motor Vehicle Act were and the IRP scheme, or how following the operator's manual undermined those purposes. And the court says, without such an explanation, the petitioner is left not knowing how the adjudicator reached that conclusion. Now, you and I both know, Paul, that what they think the purpose of of the scheme and the act is, is to prohibit as many people as possible. Yes, to uphold as many IRPs as they possibly can, to make the police officers feel good about their jobs. Yeah, it's, over overlook as many errors as possible. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's what they're saying there because it it's obviously like, well, good police procedure, following the training, making sure that you're not doing anything that even remotely could cause an unreliable result. Certainly, that's not inconsistent with, I don't know, the good administration of justice. Yeah. Okay. All sent right. back for a new hearing. Sent back for a new hearing, so maybe loses again for different reasons. No, I don't think so, because at the bottom yeah. of that decision, it says sent back for a new hearing with my with this decision in mind, Yeah, which I think is uh, the end of it on the second test issue. Yeah. Turning now, back to distracted driving, Paul. I can, I can see you have something on your laptop there, Kyla. So is it the... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Awesome. So this is a great 
case out of Vancouver. Um, you can find the story in the Daily Hive um, by Nikita Martins. Um, it is the headline is distracted much. Vancouverite with three phones, laptop drives into oncoming traffic. So this driver had three cell phones and a laptop in arm's reach, and the uh, VPD saw him <laughs> uh, um, driving around a road closure sign near Camby and Dunsmere into oncoming traffic, passing an emergency lit up police vehicle before, of course, he was then pulled over. And the VPD traffic section tweeted about this with a photograph of all of the phones that and the laptop all plugged in and charging. Doesn't mean vehicle. he was using them. It doesn't mean he was using them, but the inference <clears throat> is strong with this one. Well, I think he gets a, a uh, offense, certainly, for driving into oncoming traffic. Yeah, I mean... There's definitely some offenses happening here. Um, certainly, it's driving without due care and attention. Yeah. I think you could make that out, driving without reasonable consideration. But he was, in fact, As soon as you're driving on oncoming traffic, you're driving without due care and attention. He was only ticketed for using an electronic device, and I assume there was some evidence of actual use. Well, we'll see. We'll see if he calls us, I guess. And 121 bucks for disobeying a traffic control device. They could have gone harder. Yeah. I mean, driving into oncoming traffic in those circumstances, you might have been able to charge him. Downtown Vancouver might have been able yeah. to charge him with dangerous driving. Yep. So that's uh, that's our ridiculous driver. Wow, a local homegrown. A local homegrown, homegrown boy. Ridiculous distracted driver. I think my favorite distracted driving ridiculous story was the guy who had his cell phone like, like, connected to his or his ipad connected to his steering wheel by a series of rubber bands oh yeah yeah that was a good one is that a bc one i <laughs> think it was yeah, a bc one yeah it was great and they just added him to ask him to remove it yeah which was lovely of them i uh, it was securely mounted my my favorite ridiculous driver of the week who was a distracted driver was the guy who was making music and had his <laughs> turntable set up in his in his big rig in washington state that yes. was a good one anyway that's, That's our, podcast. our podcast. So first podcast in the new building. Don't have a podcast studio or anything. We're sitting in the reception area. We will have a podcast studio at some point. Well, it's there. It's just it's there. Sitting it's just there would be very echoey. So good start though. Good start. A little late, but we'll get it out. More to come in the future. And if you need to reach us about a distracted driving ticket, a roadside prohibition, or to wonder about our big green building, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.